I want to today begin, or rather continue, the series we began last week, sort of, <laughs> um, which, which I have entitled Dialogue with a Skeptic. And as I mentioned in my newsletter to you, I've made a, a change, like I seem to always do right before, and realizing I, I, there was something I felt that uh, is, is, was on my heart and, and I think perhaps on yours. Uh, and in talking with Sajina, I, I, I realized, you know, we're going to talk about faith and reason. But before we talk about it, we need to talk about faith and doubt. And, and when I talk about doubt, I actually want to do it in two phases. Uh, you see, there are two kinds of doubt that I feel we need to talk about. And uh, one of them is good and one of them is not. There's a doubt that I will, I will tell you is creative. Uh, and it's something that I think is, is I hope, in all of us. And, and rather than deal with that today, I'm going to save that next until next Sunday when we talk about faith and reason more uh, and, and deal with issues of, you know, other issues of, of, of faith versus science and things like that. We'll talk about that kind of creative doubt uh, next week. But today, I think it's important to us to talk about what I'm going to characterize as a destructive doubt, a radical doubt. And to get into that, I wanted to first have us just remember where we have been over the last several weeks. Remember some of the things that that are foundational for us as Christians. And so we've just come through Christmas tide. And I want to remind you the grand theme of Christmas tide, of course, is, is that is that the word became flesh, which we call the incarnation of the world. God incarnated. And and the uh, the, the, the grand text of, of Christmas is the is the prologue of, of from the Gospel of John. And you remember this. And I want to remind us of this claim, this understanding of what the word is when we refer to the word in the beginning was the word and God's self-establishing. There was no before the word. There is no after the word. The word is. And so when God answers Moses and says, I am, tell them my name is I am. uh, There's this sense of always has been, always will be going forward. And in the beginning with Yahweh, there was the father, the son, and the spirit. There was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And, and John continues with saying that the word was God with God in the beginning and that uh, the word was present for the creation, that uh, all things came into being. And so that's one of the things we hear Paul talking about in the text that uh, the ser- of the sermon that Paul preached on Mars Hill. We're going to be coming back to that, but I want to remind you of how essential that claim is. That from the beginning was the Word, and the Word is, 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 is not simply the enfleshed Word that we know and celebrated Jesus, but the Word always was. Before the Word was enfleshed, the Word was, and the Word was the Creator, you know, with the Father and the Spirit, the Word uh, was therefore the creation of all things. And then the light, that is the Word, came into the world, and uh, and there was this promise made that those who welcome the Word, welcome this light, become God's children, become God's offspring. Again, this is uh, connecting to the sermon that uh, Paul gave on Mars Hill. So I want to remind us of how essential these claims are, this understanding, and that this 
this designation as God's beloved, as God's offspring, is, is not something that comes to us on the, on the basis of our blood. It's not tribal. It's not because we will it. It's, it's for none other reason that for in, in God, God wills that we be God's beloved. God has decided that our relationship with God is what it is. And that is to be, we are God's beloved. We are God's offspring. So I want to remind us of that. That's, those are essential claims. We're going to come back to those. And so I just want to put them out there and say, that's what Christmas was all about. And then we've just entered into this season that we call Epiphany. We just celebrated the Epiphany. And uh, remember the grand lesson of it was this text where we talked about the Magi. And, uh, and, and the, the, the idea of the Magi, not the idea, but the story of the Magi uh, bringing these traditional gifts for a king and laying them before this babe. And the Epiphany, the manifestation of our Lord is, uh, is there. His identity is made manifest through the act of these people from the East coming and laying these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh and naming him, proclaiming him king. And so that's really important. As you recall, during, uh, during, that time, I, I really emphasized, and I constantly, I am constantly emphasizing for us as we go, particularly through Luke's gospel and through the Acts of the Apostles, which we deal with today, that Luke's grand theme continually is Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and not Caesar. And I want to make sure you hear me saying this. It's not that. Well, we thought Caesar was the king, but now someone else has been born. And now this person is going to compete with Caesar for kingship or lordship. No, it's the other way around. It's that that Jesus, the word, the son, the anointed one has always been, will always be the true king of the world, the true Lord of all lords. And anyone else is an imposter, imposter, Caesars, all Caesars are imposters. Jesus is the Lord of the Lords. And in that sense, he is also our sure foundation. And I mention that because one of the things I want to talk about today, the sense that caused me to feel that we need to talk about this radical doubt today is this recognition that we live in a world where it can feel like we have no foundation, that we have no sure foundation. We, we've lived in, we've been living particularly recently in a world in which there's a real question about is truth even possible for us? Is it even possible for us to know anything? When we have people saying, saying to us that, well, they say this, but I say this is true. So with, particularly with regard to our election, you know, no, I won it all. I want it all. I want it in a landslide. And we have many people following this. We have this understanding of, well, how in the world? We have this confusion in our own minds at times. It says, well, is there any such thing as truth? Do we even have access to truth? And I wanted to remind us of this claim that Jesus is our sure foundation. Jesus is the truth. God is the truth. And if we are to understand how we are to live, Jesus is our plumb line of righteousness, as the Old Testament puts it. And as Paul puts it, in his epistle to the Romans, talking about the significance of who Jesus is. Uh, and you'll find in, in Romans chapter 10, he talks about Jesus is the telos of Torah. He, knows he is the end point. He is the aim towards which God's instruction is pointing. He is the one who teaches us what it means to uh, walk in faith with God. And so, 
Jesus is the standard bearer. See, Jesus is the source of our ethics. Jesus is the one who tells us how we are to live in right relationship with God. Now, there's another point that I want to remind us of. We talked during Christmas tide about the gifts that we're given, that are that are freely given, the gifts of peace and the gifts of joy. And, and, and sometimes we, we need to remember that these are gifts given. We simply need to claim them. We don't need to create them. We don't have to invent them. God freely gives us this peace. And, and I want you to remind you that this peace that's given is not a peace that someone else provides for us. It is the peace that already is. It's the peace that is the the life of the triune God, of the Father and the Son. And remember, we talk on Trinity Sunday about how how they love each other so much that they sacrifice for each other. The Father gives the greatest thing he has to the Son out of love for the Son, all of creation. He says, this is yours. Everything in it is yours. And the Son gives himself to the Father so that that created order might be reconciled. And so in the Spirit gives itself completely to the expression of this will that we all be drawn into the good. And so the, 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 the nature of the life of the triune God is this peace. If we want to know what peace is, what we see is this life in which the, the pattern is humble service to one another. There is no conflict because each to the other is offering self in their personhood. And so so the content of this life of the triune God is is a humble self-offering so that the other might flourish. And Jesus is calling us simply to receive this pattern, to receive this peace. And the way we do it is by participating in his life. And as we've talked uh, together for so many Sundays, our way of, of claiming that, our way of participating in this life, of receiving this peace is to walk with him on the way of love. And it's hard, but we can, we're able to do it because he walks ahead of us on that trail. He walks behind us on that trail. He walks with us on that trail, holding us by our right hand. And so this peace is the peace of our Lord. That's the source of our peace, all of which brings me to Mars Hill. You guys know who Mars is, right? Mars is, is the God of war. And this is this location where the Council of Athens meets. And that's, I think, a significant point. Uh, just as a reminder, what was the peace of, of the cult of Caesar? The peace, as we've spoken about, the, the, the faux peace, as I've called it in the past, is this peace that comes from Caesar. And if you look at the temples, I've mentioned to you before, if you look at the Temple of Peace in Rome and, and see all of its grandeur, see all of its decoration, you see that the, the, the peace, the temple of peace is decorated by the winds of war, by the symbols of war. And so the self-understanding of the cult of Caesar is that the way to peace, the, the peace Romana, the Pax Romana, the peace of, of, of Rome, the peace of Caesar is this peace that comes from violence. In Mars Hill, just the name of the place where Paul meets with the, the council at Athens, uh, reminds us uh, he's going into a place where the self-understanding of the folks is that this peace comes not from this God who is unknown to them, but from those who control the means of violence. So I want to ask us to walk through this sermon with that Paul gives. And I want to remind us of of one thing in the setting. His life is at risk. 
if you know your ancient history, you know this is the place where Seneca was forced to take poison uh, because he had introduced a new God. He had introduced new ideas. And so they were all into hearing all things new, but they weren't uh, very tolerant of those who introduced uh, ideas that um, supplanted the old. And so Paul was, was quite at risk uh, had he uh, told them that there was a, now a new God that they were to worship. Uh, he could have been and probably would have been uh, executed. And so he's standing there at risk. He has to find a way of naming the gospel and naming this, this, this Jesus for them in such a way that names God as one who is not a new God, but God that they, a God that they have always known. And one of the things he says at the beginning, I want to just point out, he, he names it. I noticed that you're extremely religious. And in the Greek, we, we see he's, he's, uh, he's being a little sarcastic, it appears. He's, he's saying you, you, you could translate this into superstitious. I can see you're very superstitious in every way because I, everywhere I look, I see these objects of worship, these things to which you cling for your joy, for your peace. And I, and I saw this, this uh, inscription on one of them, this, this altar to the unknown God. And so I'm going to tell you the name of that God, he says. And then he says something that we talked about from the Gospel of John just moments ago, that God is the one who created all things. And he doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in the spaces that we create. He doesn't live in the Colosseum. He doesn't live in the White House. He doesn't live in any space. He's a God over all spaces. He's a God over all time. And God made the nations. He created us as people so that together we might grope for him. And I mentioned that the, the phrase here that I underlined so that they would seek him. Uh, we would probably better translate as grope for them. If you remember that our understanding is that we see God now, but we see God now as through a mirror darkly. And so there's this sense of seeking and, and finding, but not ever grasping completely because the God we're talking about is the infinite one. And, and so God, is there and present, but we are still seeking him. And then he he quotes this uh, this poet from the, from Stoicism that they all would have known. So he's he's saying there's some common ground we have here. There are certain things that we all understand to be true. Now now I thought this came from the Book of Common Prayer, didn't you? In 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 him we live and move and ha- in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, I thought they got that from the Book of Common Prayer and put it in the Bible, but turns out it was actually an ancient Stoic poem. And Paul is making an allusion, expressing common ground and say, hey, we all understand that, that God is the source of all being. And he names the thing I spoke about earlier. We are his offspring. So you Stoics, you Epicureans, you Cynics, we can all agree on this, that we too are his offspring. And that turns out to be an important point because Paul is going to now flip it on him in his, in his sermon. He says, well, think about that. If we are God's offspring, then why in the world would we think that we can create God, an image of God that looks just like that. No way. If, if we are God's offspring, we look like God. God doesn't look like us. And so whenever we imagine a God and worship a God that looks like us, acts like us, experiences our emotions, we are engaged in idolatry. And here's the proof of that. If we're God's offspring by your own poets, we would agree 
that we can't create God in our own image. A masterful rhetorical stroke by Paul. So we'll come back to that, but I want you to remember this move that he makes, because one of the things I want to suggest to you is that's the same move that we need to make as the body of Christ today. So let's pivot now. I want to talk to you about something I'm going to name, a, 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 an archetype I'm going to name. This is no single individual, uh, but uh, someone I think that we can recognize, and I'm going to call them the resentful Christian. And I, I've spoken about resentment before. Is resentment can, you know, explode into anger, but usually it's sort of an ambient noise, something we're constantly feeling. And when we resent something, usually we're saying, I'm not getting my fair share. You're not respecting me the way I ought to be respected. You're not giving me the justice that's my due. I'm not being loved the way I want to be loved, the way I need to be loved. And that's not fair. It's not fair. So you need to turn around. You need to change your behavior. Someone needs to take me out of the situation. So I do get the respect, the love, the justice that is my due. And when we do this collectively, we do this individually, but when we do this collectively, this rises up in us. This resentment becomes manifest in us. And, and you hear in our cries, these cries that are so common to us Americans and to Westerners in particular, uh, there's these cries for liberty, for justice, for egalité, for fraternité. You'll recognize those, of course, from the French Revolution. Those were the cries uh, that motivated, that inspired it. Now, the, 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 the resentful Christian is one who, uh, that I'm talking about, has lived for not just decades, but generations after generation after generation of being at the bottom of the socioeconomic um, ladder being stuck, being trapped in despair, unable to change their position, no upward mobility. And so generation after generation and their self-understanding and identity all wrapped up in this resentment that says, I am not getting the liberty that is rightly mine. I'm not getting the uh, being treated as fraternal in a fraternal way with those who call me fellow citizens. They don't they look down upon me. They condescend to me. And I am angry at that. And generation after generation of that, that can become enshrouded in uh, uh, enshrined into our self identity as a group, as a collective identity. And um and, and it can bubble up at times, and we've seen that in our own American history. We've seen it in Western history. One of the problems with this, if we live in, 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 you know, for a very, very long time, calling out to God, calling out to our brethren, asking for deliverance, eventually we can, like Pharaoh, become one who's unable to hear God calling to us. We can, we can grow so used to our situation and that we begin to uh, no longer uh, be conscious of God's nature as one who delivers because God hasn't delivered us. So if God has not delivered us after all these years, eh, so why should God be my ultimate concern? Why should I trust in this God who's not delivering me, but is seems to have become the God of the middle classes, the God of the ruling classes who lorded over me? 
okay, I'll, I'll comply. I will comply with form. Uh, uh, I will go through the mechanics of being pious. But honestly, I don't think serving this God, this Jesus is my ultimate concern, because frankly, I've not had a conversation with him yet. He doesn't seem to be listening. And when you get that way, when God's way no longer is your ultimate concern, you are now in this thing that I want to call radical doubt. I am now doubting, without perhaps thinking about it, my ability to hear God addressing me. I am doubting the reality of God hearing my pleas, my cries. And eventually, I can reach a point where I say, when I ask myself the question, what am I to do now? When I ask myself the question, how should I live? Historically, the answer has been, well, I will live according to God's way. I will live according to Jesus's way. But Jesus ain't listening. Jesus isn't delivering me. So I ask, who will show me the way to my deliverance? And this is a phenomenon that we see, although the phenomenon I'm describing to you is something that you, some of you may recognize. I know that some of you have a background in philosophy, and you probably recognize I'm channeling Friedrich Nietzsche here in his analysis of the masses and some of the things. And I'm suggesting to you quite intentionally that uh, this is a phenomenon. It's a pretty good analysis that helps us to understand our current situation. Because one of the things that Nietzsche reminds us of is in this period, in this space of deep resentment where it becomes impossible for the, the resentful Christian to hear the word of God calling him to his place of deliverance and to where, where there becomes a faith that is no longer a faith that, that, uh, call the faith in the way of love when that call becomes who shall deliver me inevitably someone will stand up and say i will someone will rise up and say i will i act i'm a man of power i will and i will define what is good and what is evil. That other reference point, this reference point that you call the God of love is, is not the way. I will be the one who will determine good and evil. I will be the one who will deliver you. And this is a phenomenon that we see a lot in history, and some of you could probably give some examples. But the thing I want to point to is one of the moves that, that gets made here is this Uberman stands up and leads the people who, uh, who have become compliant, who become conformant, and will believe whatever this person who's going to deliver them uh, uh, from their situation says, no matter how irrational it is, uh, uh, they will then take on this notion of Caesar's deliverance and what Caesar says peace is. And so we saw this classically in the French Revolution. And some of you uh, will recall the grand uh, guillotine. And so um, the guillotine was like, just like Caesar's peace, was a more modern, enlightened version of the way we achieve peace was uh, cutting off the heads of our rulers, uh, conquering them. So the Superman is a fighter. 
The Superman brings us to peace by fighting, by rising up, by by bringing in pipe bombs, by doing all of these things that throw off the power of the ruling, con, uh, ruling classes that we resent. And of course, we've seen a little bit of that lately, haven't we? This image for me is haunting this image of a gallows erected on so many levels. This is, this is uh, offensive, but on so many levels, it's just tragic. And it's particularly tragic for me to know that these were our fellow Christians, many of them who erected it. And so uh, I, I say to you that today uh, we have uh, so we have a word to do. We have we have work to do. Uh, we have a Christianity that is divided in our understanding of how we are to proceed. And we feel the agony of our uh, divisions. But I wanted to suggest to you that there is a grounds of hope. And we see it in Paul's sermon today. And I uh, want to suggest to you that what Paul tells us is that you and I have a word to speak. We have a duty to speak to that resentful Christian. And what I want to remind you is that the grounds of hope we have come from the one who answers, I am. The one who asks us, whom shall I send? And we rise up as Judy sang to us and say, here I am, Lord. We don't say, uh, I will determine God and God, uh, what, what good and evil is. We instead say that God has determined what good and evil is. We have a sure foundation. Here I am, send me, I will deliver your word. And what I, the reason I mention that is, is because I want to remind us that God's means of saving us is through the fellowship that Jesus commissioned, the fellowship of sufferings, the fellowship of those of us who commit to walking on the way of love, who commit to understanding that God saves us by reminding us of who we are, calling us to be who he created us to be, and who he created us to be is a people who whose lives point to the inner life of the triune God, whose lives point to the peace that exists, that simply is the content of the life between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the content of the life, which is humble service. So we, we're called to share the word of the, of the Jesus who teaches us this by coming down, taking his robe off, kneeling before us, and washing our feet. God saves us by reminding us of who we are, of reminding us of the, of. of our calling to receive this peace that is ours when we commit ourselves not to violence, but to humble service. And so my, my friends, uh, we have a word to speak. And I think the way we speak that word is first a prophetic word that names the idolatry that we witnessed uh, at the Capitol, that names Jesus 2020 is a Jesus made in our image we are his offspring. We are to reflect. We do reflect the nature of God. God's nature is within us. God does not, God, the God we worship is not a God of resentment, is not a God of violence, but a God who offers us this, this peace. And so whenever we raise up an idol and proclaim Caesar's peace, we know that what we're proclaiming is idolatry, a false God. 
And so we have a duty to call our brethren who have begun to worship this idol and to call them back to remembering who we are and remembering who God is. And so I invite us, I charge us as a body to spread that word, to not be silent, to no longer be silent. We have a word that that we're called to say that is no, that is not the God. We know the name of this unknown God, and he is a God of peace. And we are to then practice this peace. We have a duty to break bread, to share our bread. And so that involves all sorts of legislative priorities so that those who resent, those who've not been given the love that is their due, the justice that there is their due, the respect that there is, is their due, are in fact delivered from their despair. So I think there are grounds of hope and there's also a calling for us. And I wanted to to both charge us and also uh, encourage us to recognize that God has already given us the answer. We know the path that we need to go forward. And therefore, there is a reason for us to hope that God, God's justice will prevail. God's peace will prevail. And we will, in fact, all be one in Christ Jesus, for God has already conquered the evil that feels so threatening to us as we live in our time. God is, God was, God will always be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.